All right, good morning. How are we? Awesome, good. It's great to be with you seniors. We're proud of you. I want you to know how proud of, of you that I am. I know our church is so proud of you for all the hard work you've put in. And Jeremy said it best. Um, God is calling you to a new place, a new season. One chapter is over and a new chapter begins, which is an exciting time in your life. You know, I think back on those days myself and, and you know, you don't know what you don't know. Um, but I tell you what, God knows exactly what you don't know. And he's equipped you to handle the things that you're about to walk through. And I just wanna encourage you this morning to remember who you are and remember who God's called you to be. Remember that you're a son, you're a daughter of Christ and that he is going to work in and through you as you continue in obedience to him this morning. So here we go. We're gonna continue in our series of Captive Life. Uh, before we do that, you know, I'm gonna share something with you. So I love a good movie. You like movies? I like a good story, I like getting caught up in a good story. I, for whatever reason, I'm, I'm always drawn to underdog stories. Are you, can you relate to that? You like underdog stories? You know, you might like underdog stories more than you think you do. Guys, I mean, come on, Rudy, are you serious? If you haven't seen it, we can't be friends. Okay, I, I don't know what to tell you, Rudy, man, that, what a great story. It tells the story of this young guy named Rudy has this dream of playing football for the University of Notre Dame, but doesn't have the grades, doesn't have the size, doesn't have the skill to get there yet. He never gives up on his dream, right? He moves close to campus, starts going to school at a junior college to make the grades to get into the school. He gets into Notre Dame after a lot of heartache, suffering, sacrifice. He gets into the school. He walks on, guess what? He makes the team. He never gives up. He makes the practice squad. He never gives up and then the, the movie ends with Rudy running across the field. He made it, he gets to the game, he gets 40 some odd seconds in a game and man, every guy's eyes are teared, right? Teary-eyed. Ladies, you're not as different as you think. The notebook. <laughs> Come to your neighborhood too. Nicholas Sparks tells the, this romantic story of Noah. It's a romantic novel of a working class boy who falls in love with Allie, a young lady from a high class, wealthy family. Despite all odds, they meet, they spend a whole summer together. By the end of the summer, of course, they fall in love. Wealthy mom and dad, lower class guy, they don't want them to be together. So what do they do? They move back home early from their summer vacation home. Years later, you know, Allie, she's engaged to another man who fits, but yet she's unsatisfied. What does she do? She goes back home. She goes, or she goes back to that vacation home, North Carolina, and guess what? Reunites. In the movie, there's this moment in the movie where they reunite, they go out on this romantic, you know, paddle boat experience. Storm comes in. It's raining cats and dogs. They make it back to the dock and there's this kind of moment where they're sharing and, and she looks at him and she's like, why didn't you write me? Y'all seen the memes? And he's like, I wrote you every day for a year. She's like, I never gave up on you. For seven years I waited on you. And he says, ladies, what does he say? It's not over and it's still not over, <laughs> right? We love a good underdog story. Noah ends up with the girl in the end. 
You know, both of these stories have in common is they're, they're both about an underdog who somehow, someway ends up getting what they hope for in the end. But stories like these get me thinking, what is it that drives these underdog stories? What is it that makes them so special? And I think that the answer is, is that for both of them, whether it's Rudy, Noah, me, you, any of us, is that when we have a goal in mind, we have a desire in mind, a hope in mind, we begin to develop a plan, a mission. You may not realize it, but they've developed a mission, a clear mission for how they want to achieve that goal, and they go out and do it. In fact, it's the mission that drives them to the end. This morning, as we open our text in Colossians, I want you to see that a captive life is built on a mission. It's built on a mission. It's our mission given to us by God that Paul argues has the power to see us through to the end. So I want you to begin thinking, before we read the text this morning, what is the mission that God has called you to? What is your personal mission statement? Maybe that's a good way to think about it. What, what has God uniquely called you to in this time, in this place, for his glory and the fame of the name of Jesus? What, what is the mission that God has called you to? Okay, with that being said, I want to read our text for this morning. It's going to be Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 24 through 29, so if you'd stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. By the way, the reason why we stand is simply just to acknowledge the power of God's Word, and it's to respect it in such a way as to acknowledge that it is our authority over our lives. It bears weight and authority. So here we go. Verse 24. This is Paul. He's writing to Christians and he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. He says, this mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed in the saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his, of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so Paul writes in verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy, that he powerfully works within me. You may be seated. You know, you may have caught on there in verse 24 that Paul says a really strange statement. Paul says in verse 24, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That's a weird statement. I think we can agree with that. That's a strange statement. Strange statement that Paul is saying here. And you got to ask the question, is Paul in, in some way, shape, or form, is he saying that Christ's suffering on the cross was insufficient? Is that what, is that what Paul's saying? I mean, that, that somehow Paul's ministry is filling up this insufficiency of Christ's affliction on the cross? Jeez, Paul, that's a pretty bold statement. But I think that would be a misunderstanding of what Paul is claiming. So you have to understand the context of which Paul's ministry began. And so 
so let me kind of go back here. So Paul, you know, he's, over the course of his life, had about 30 years of ministry. Paul was converted in 36 AD. History tells us that he was martyred somewhere around 68 AD. Tradition has it that, as a matter of fact, that he was actually martyred in May or June. And so we're coming up on his anniversary of, of Paul's death. But during those 30 years, Paul was beaten multiple times, some of which he was described as being dead. It's pretty crazy. He was shipwrecked, bitten by a poisonous snake. I mean, that'd probably be enough. He was rejected by many, hated by most. Now, this is Paul's ministry. For 30 years, Paul did this. You know, on this, side of, on this side of the New Testament, we look back at Paul and think, man, he's the greatest missionary of all time. And you know what? He is. But I tell you, his success uh, was littered with a whole lot more no's than it was yeses. Paul, in addition, Paul spent eight years in and out of prison for proclaiming the gospel. And by the way, prison in, in, in Paul's day was not like prison today. You didn't get three square meals a day in a cot. You didn't get some outside time, some TV time. You didn't get those things. <laughs> if you do any research on what a first century prison was like, it was miserable, unsanitary, disgusting, horrible conditions. And he spent eight years until the day that he was martyred in Rome. Now, the, the unique thing about Paul's ministry is Paul knew what he was getting himself into. In fact, Luke records it in Acts chapter 9. He tells of the conversion of Saul. Remember, at Paul's conversion, he went from being Saul to Paul, right? And so it, Luke chapter, or Acts chapter 9 tells the story of this. He's on his way to Damascus where he's um, focused on persecuting more Christians, and he's met by the risen Jesus, a light shines around Paul, so bright was the light that it literally blinds him and all he hears is the voice that we now know of as Jesus. Uh, Jesus questions Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul has this literally come to Jesus moment and Jesus says, okay, now I want you to go to Damascus. There's a house that I want you to go to and there you're gonna find instructions. So need you ever wonder if God is working behind the scenes? He does because as he sends Paul to this particular house where he's gonna get his instructions, God also shows up to a person named Ananias, a faithful brother, and he begins to give him a vision. And he says, Ananias, I want you to go to this house. There's a guy whose name is Saul. He's gonna be there. Ananias goes, hey, you got the wrong guy. I know who that guy is. I'm not going near him. Um, nevertheless, Ananias does that and he shows up and in and, and the directions that Jesus gives Ananias at the time is I want you to pray for him. He's gonna regain his sight. He's gonna become a missionary, but I don't want you to see or I don't want you to miss what Luke records in verse 15 of chapter nine. This is God speaking to Ananias in this vision. The Lord tells him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Note this, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul started off his ministry knowing what he was getting himself into, that his ministry, while he was a chosen instrument of God, his ministry was gonna come through much suffering. 
Paul's life demonstrates that often gospel ministry happens through suffering. This is what Paul is communicating. It's not that Christ's afflictions weren't sufficient, they were. Paul is merely continuing to walk in the suffering of Christ by taking the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. He's continuing the suffering of Christ on the cross for the sake of those who have yet to believe by carrying the weight and the suffering of gospel ministry to the ends of the earth. And he's reminding us that salvation oftentimes comes through pain and suffering. This is why Paul says that he rejoices in suffering with gratitude because it's through suffering that Christ is made known, people are saved, and that things are made new. Oftentimes for things to be made new, something has to die in order for new growth to sprout up. I don't know if you knew this or not, but all throughout the New Testament, there runs a theme of suffering for the cause of Christ. In fact, all the disciples were martyred and most, if not all the New Testament writers experienced some form of persecution, many of whom were also martyred and exiled for their faith. Why is that? Well, because like Paul, oftentimes salvation comes through suffering for the saints and for the sake of those who do not yet believe. This is why Jesus said, if they're gonna persecute me, they're gonna persecute you. If you identify with me, if you carry my name, then you ought to expect suffering. You ought to expect some level of persecution because if they persecuted me, they're gonna persecute you. Why? Because the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. You know, we've, um, you know, we've been blessed. I, th- I think back of the privilege that you and I share of getting to be raised in the United States where, you know, our laws and constitution are, are based on Christian morality and, and all those things. We are blessed. We're blessed to have grown up in a country where we have yet to experience a great deal of persecution. But understand, for the better part of the world, that is not the same story. For many, if not most, Christians are suffering today for their faith. And and this is gonna sound kind of gloom and doom, but I think it's just true, is that we are are getting ready to enter into that story. To some degree, you and I are getting ready to enter into a new world. it's, it's a world called post-Christendom where Christianity is no longer popular. There's no longer social capital of being a part of a church where you can say, oh yeah, I'm a part of that church. And people think, oh wow, man, that's great. Now it's like, ooh, man. Because to bear the name of Jesus, to bear the name of a Christ follower, to bear the name of a Christian in today's day, communicates that more often than not that you're a bigot, that you're a hypocrite, that, that you're someone who adheres to a, a book that was written 2,000 years ago that has little to no relevance today and the only reason why we even follow this thing is to enslave people and, and to rob them of their, ha- their happiness and a satisfying life. And that's, that's what you and I are walking into That's the reality that you and I 
are walking into. We're no longer the majority, but the minority. But hey, here's the, here's the good news of this. The good news is that the gospel does its best work in persecution. In fact, I would say in persecution, the gospel has spread faster, deeper, and has been far more effective in the lives of believers under persecution than it has in freedom. Now, that's not to say that we don't want freedom, but it is to say that history reminds us that the gospel does its best work in Christian, or gospel does its best work under persecution. And here's the reason why. Nobody who's gathering on a Sunday morning is half in and half out. There's no such thing as 50% attendance when your life is on the line. There's no such thing as nominal Christianity in a world of persecution or something that you believe. Because why in the world would you show up if it's gonna cost you your life or it's gonna cost you your business or if it's gonna cost you your reputation or who knows what else is gonna cost you? Why in the world would I show up to that? And so the question that you and I've gotta ask is what in the world are we to do? If that's true, and I think it is, then what in the world are we gonna do? Well, I think Paul tells us in verse 25 very plainly, I think he gives us our mission. I think he says, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trials and tribulations, in the midst of all of this, here's what our focus is. We've got to build our life on a mission. And in verse 25, he gives that to us very clearly. He says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed in the saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, Paul says that in the midst of persecution, in the midst of all of this, here's what we are to do. And it begins with our identity. He says, if we've, been, if we've given our lives to following Christ, then we are all ministers. And we're not just talking about paid vocational staff members of a church. We're talking about all of us. Like if you are, if you've said yes to Jesus, if you've placed your faith and your trust in him, then you are a minister, whether you realize it or not. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians chapter five, if you are a new creation, then you are an ambassador. And if to be an ambassador means that you are a representative, you are a minister. And Paul says to be a minister means that you are a steward. You, me, collectively, all of us are ministers of reconciliation. We are stewards. You might ask the question, well, what in the world does it mean to be a steward? What am I a steward of? We are stewards of what God has revealed to us. We are stewards of God's revelation. By the way, did you know that the, that the Bible is not merely a roadmap to life? It's not merely a history book, it's not merely a science book, but rather it is the story of God's self-revelation to you and to me. It's a story that reveals to us that God created the world, he created it to be in perfect harmony, and, and it's a story of how that perfect harmony was shattered by sin, and it's a story of how in Christ God is reconciling all things in heaven and on earth back to him. It's this beautiful, redemptive story of how God created the world, how we shattered it through sin and our own disobedience, and how God is restoring all things back to the way that he desired it in the beginning. 
So what Paul is saying here is that we are a steward of that story. So no matter where we live, where we work, where we play, where we go to school, all of these things, what we are is we are a steward of the story that God has revealed to you and to me in Christ via his word. He would go on to say that we are stewards of a mystery that has been hidden for ages but has now been revealed to the saints. Speaking of us, what mystery is he referring to? Great question. Thankfully, Paul defines this mystery. He says that the mystery is Christ in you. Anytime Paul talks about the mystery, typically Paul is talking about the gospel. That's what he's talking about here, only he broadens it. He broadens it to the implications of the gospel in your life. Namely, that, that if you have placed your faith and your trust in Christ, you've given him your life, then he has entered into your very body via his spirit. Jesus' spirit now dwells in you. That's what he says, Christ in you. Oftentimes, Paul uses the phrase in Christ. Here he changes it to say Christ in you. That's the mystery that Paul is talking about here. We're to be a steward of the story of the gospel, but at the same time, we are to be a steward of the fact that Christ lives in us. He lives in us and he works in and through us. That means that we are saved not only to enjoy a relationship with God for all of eternity, wow, but also that we might be a steward of this revelation to the people around us via the spirit that lives within you. Now here's the cool thing about this. There's really three implications. Because we have God's spirit living within us, no matter what we face on this earth, so no matter what persecution, no matter what kind of rejection, no matter what you and I experience on this earth, we know that we are sealed for the day of redemption. And that's not Ziploc kind of sealed, right? It's not, a Ziploc kind of sealed that water can leak out if even though I zip the thing. I'm talking this is sealed, shut, hemmed in, sewed in. If you have the Spirit of God in you, you are sealed. Paul writes of this in Ephesians 4.30. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. No number of words, actions, or even harm done to us can reverse God's seal on us. We are sealed in him by his very spirit. In addition to that, as if that wasn't enough, in addition to God's sealing of us in his spirit, we also have God's spirit to reveal truth to us, to navigate us through the complexities of life, to, to give us direction, to guide our steps, to be a light for uh, that lights the, the, the way, the truth, and the life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul writes, he says, But it is written, What no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for through the Spirit searches, for though the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand these things freely given to us by God. The world doesn't have that. The unbeliever doesn't have that. But to the believer, through God's spirit, we are sealed and he reveals his truth to us to navigate us through the highs, the lows, the valleys, the mountain peaks, all of it. 
He has sealed us and he has revealed his truth to us, but also another implication of his spirit in us is that he empowers us for a mission. He empowers us for mission. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, there's this, this moment of anticipation. Jesus has gone back to be with the Father. He has now descended back to the disciples to give them instructions. And in Acts chapter one, verse eight, here's what Jesus says to the disciples. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What he's communicating here is that through the Spirit, through the work of the Spirit, we are empowered to accomplish the mission given to us by God as we faithfully live as stewards of this divine ministry, mystery. Now, thankfully, Paul is a bit of a pragmatist. And Paul expands in verse 28 of this mission that he has given to us. This is Paul making sure that you and me and everybody understands very clearly what this mission that we have been given, what exactly what it is. In verse 28, he, he leaves no room for interpretation or assumption. In verse 28, he says, him we proclaim, speaking of Jesus, Jesus we proclaim warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, hear this, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's it. That's it. That's the mission that you and I have been given. Our mission as followers of Jesus is that we have been called into this ministry, this ministry where, where we are to teach, where we are to preach, where we are to help people be presented fully mature before Christ. That's our goal. We're to present everyone mature in Christ. It is our job as stewards of God's revelation to help everyone God has placed in our path to take their next step towards Jesus. And that's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about it this way. Your job and my job is to help people that God has placed in our life take one more step towards Jesus and then another step towards Jesus and then another step towards Jesus and then another step towards Jesus. And here's the great thing. You don't have to be a biblical scholar. You don't have to know Hebrew or Greek or any of those things to be able to do that. You simply have to have a willing heart, open hands to say, God, you've placed me in this workplace You've placed me in this home. You've placed me in this neighborhood. You've placed me on this ball field. You've placed me in this club, this organization, this classroom, all to help present these people in my life that you've given me favor with as mature in Christ. Now, here's the deal. You know, we did the discipleship pathway series a couple months ago. The reason why we did that is for this verse, because I want you to know how easy it is for you to take this seriously. As a matter of fact, I got this because I wanted you to see it, but I turned it backwards because I didn't want you to be distracted because I know how that goes. All right, everybody see that? It's up there on the screen. 
Here's the discipleship pathway, y'all. This is how you and I engage in a ministry of helping present people mature in Christ, no matter where they are. So let's just say you've got somebody in your, in your workplace who's not a Christian. Then guess what your goal is? Help to connect them with Jesus. Your goal is to do all that you can, beginning with prayer, building a relationship, to help introduce them to the person of Jesus. That's step number one, help connect them to Jesus. You know what step number two is? Help, upon their profession of faith, guess what we're gonna do? We're gonna help connect them to a church. Because you know why? They're gonna need it. Because the Satan doesn't play. Right, so you wanna connect them to a church, connect them to a group of people like this who are gonna encourage them, who are gonna challenge them, who are gonna hold them accountable to say, hey, you can do it. And when they're in the valley, they're, they're gonna come alongside them and say, hey, look, hey, there's the light at the end of the tunnel. You can do this. To have somebody come and pray with them and encourage them and gather around them, right? That's just helping them take their next step towards Jesus and maturity. That's what this is, right? So that's, that's one. Two, help get them connected in a Sunday school class where they can grow, they can start learning the Bible, and they can be encouraged to take this and each morning take 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, and spend time with God's word, allow God to begin working in their life through his word, where they can learn how to pray, where they can learn how to give, where they can learn how to do all of these things that are important for their life as they take a next step in maturity towards Christ, right? Then we want them to serve, help them serve. God has uniquely given every one of you a gift. Whether you realize it or not, whether somebody has told you that, that, that you don't amount to anything and that you have no gifts, I'm gonna tell you that's a lie because if you are Christ, that he's given you his spirit and part of him giving you, you his spirit is that he has uniquely wired you and gifted you with a gift to be used for his kingdom. And so you help them figure that out. Right? And then from there, they're serving. They're serving the church. They're serving in the community. And then boom, they're multiplying. They're helping other people take their next steps towards Christ. But hear me, you can't do this unless you're doing it. Like you, you, can't, you, can't, you can't do this. You can't help somebody else do this if you're not doing it yourself. See, there used to be this phrase that would say, well, don't do as I do, do as I say. But we, we can't do that in Christianity. We can't do that in the church anymore because people see through that. You and I have to take this seriously. We have to be taking steps in maturity towards Christ. And by the way, we never get over this, right? Because even if you're connected with him, even if you're growing with him, even if you're serving with him, and even if you're multiplying, there's always more growth to be done. There's always more service to be done. There's always more people who need to hear the name of Jesus, right? We never outgrow this discipleship pathway. That's the beautiful part of it all. And so we just help other people come alongside of us as we are pursuing those same steps ourselves. Now, you may think, oh my goodness, I don't have time for that. Listen, you, <laughs> everybody has time. We all have time for what we prioritize. So to say that we don't have time is a lie because we do. Guess what? Everyone in this room eats. Y'all eat? Y'all like food? I like food. Every one of us eats. 
So bring somebody along and say, hey, I want to pour my life into you. I want to help you take your next step toward Christ and maturity. Every one of us has a hobby. Every one of us has things that we're already doing. Invite somebody into it. Now, here's another thing, right? Somebody might be going, well, man, Logan, I, my goodness, I, I'm, I'm, I'm right here myself. Or I'm, I'm right here. I mean, how, what do I have to offer? Look, verse 29. Look what, look what Paul says in verse 29. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. Listen, as you give your hands open to God and say, God, just use me, he promises to work in and through you. And that is far better than anything that you have to offer. Listen, you you may not have a charismatic personality. You may not feel like you have gifts. You may not feel like you have anything to offer. But have you read the Bible Have you seen the people that God uses? It's amazing. I mean, just just read the stories of these crazy people that are not skilled, that are not gifted, that are not pretty, that are not good looking, that are not knowledgeable, and yet God uses them. Because there's power in our weakness. There's power in our insufficiencies. And God says, hey, you know what? Bring your efficiencies efficiencies to me. Bring your weaknesses to me and watch what I do in them. As a matter of fact, watch how I I just explode in and through you in your weaknesses. I'm telling you, all it takes is somebody to say, you know what, Lord, I'm going to give my life to you. And I'm really going to give my life to you. Not just a little piece of my life. Not just, not just a little window, but I'm gonna give all of it to you. And I'm gonna entrust you to work in and through me, even in the hard times, even when I don't want to, even when I don't have the energy. Why? Because I'm working in his energy, not my energy. And I know that you're working through me and I'm gonna trust that. I'm just gonna trust that if I fumble through some words, maybe I don't know all the right words to say in a gospel presentation. Well, you know what? Neither do I, but God does. And it's God who does the work. It's God who's doing the saving. It's God who does the sanctification. It's God who does all of it. So long as you're willing to be used. So, wrap it all up. A captive life is a life built on a mission. Built on a mission. It's built on a mindset that says, No matter what's going on in my life, God has placed me here for this particular time to present everyone mature in Christ. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you for your grace and your kindness to us. Lord, thank you for the way that you love us. Thankful, Lord, for the way that you use us, that even when in our weaknesses, even when we're exhausted, even when we're frustrated, even when we're burned out, even when all of these things in life, and they're real, God, you promise to use us and to work in and through us, Lord, and we thank you for that. God, thank you that you never leave us. Thank you that you never forsake us. Thank you that you, you don't leave us in those weaknesses, but God, you work in and through it. God, thank you for the mission that you've given to us today. 
to help all people take their next step towards your son, Jesus. Lord, and I'm confident that even right now, Lord, that you're at work in our hearts and I'm confident that by your spirit, you are, you're bringing to mind somebody in our lives that you are calling us to help take their next step to Jesus. God, I pray that, that as you do that, Lord, I pray that, that you wouldn't allow us to hear that conviction, to hear your voice and to leave it here and to forget about that on Monday morning. But God, I pray that this wouldn't just be a Sunday morning mission, but this would be an everyday kind of a mission, an everyday kind of a purpose that you have called us into trusting again, Lord, that you're gonna work in and through our effort. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.